Living Wisely, Living Well, March 11. Listen as much to the tone of people's voices as to their words. How they speak often expresses as much as what they say. It was really interesting. Last night I was... uh, I, I don't watch the news closely, but I do watch it a little bit. And I sort of watch selectively. I'll sort of... I don't actually... Oh, I do look at news sites, but I, I usually look at where there's just a little little compilations of little bits of things because I figure the little bits they pull out are all I need to know. And there's this one um, sort of political thing. The details of it are not even important. I was somewhat positively inclined toward this uh, particular political expression. I clicked onto what was on the screen, and I heard someone speaking and their manner of speaking and their tone of voice was exceedingly off-putting. And then, to my dismay, I realized that he was representing something I had never seen a, a, a human represent, only, only seen little films, and realized that if that was the human behind those films, I really didn't like any part of it. And it wasn't even what he was saying. It was precisely what Swami says here. It was the way he was saying it. I didn't like his consciousness. His consciousness seemed mean, and it seemed arrogant to me. And I had, I had suspected that from the little bit that I'd seen, but what I had seen was also very um, creatively and intelligently expressed, and I admired that. And so I was ignoring the meanness and the arrogance. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm being unnecessarily mysterious here, but it's only the details are not important. It's only the experience that I had of suddenly hearing the tone of voice and the manner in which he was speaking, which communicated so much that no matter what the message had been, I really didn't want to be a part of it anymore. I'll tell you, this is not about tone of voice, but this is about consciousness. When Swami Kriyananda had to buy a new car, um, at what point in his life? You know, maybe around, would have been around the 90s, maybe around then. He was old enough um, that his body was he, his body was not very comfortable. He actually started developing serious arthritis in his hips in his early 40s. When he started Ananda, he literally took the burden of, of starting Ananda onto his own body, and it primarily manifested through uh, serious arthritis in his hips, which by the time he had a dual hip replacement some 20 years later, the surgeon said that he had never seen such degenerated hips. He did not know why Swami was not bedridden, given the condition he was in. He was always in a great deal of pain. And after that, he just always, he used his body for car, uh, to work out karma that wasn't his own. So there was always a lot going on in his body. Much of it is physical pain, either in his hips or in his back or something like that. So when he bought a car, to come back to that, the first criteria was that it be comfortable for him. And, you know, big, comfortable, soft seats, lots of room to move around. These are the things that for him were very important. So he was looking at different cars, and he found a car, and I believe it was a, a Buick or a Lincoln or some some large, somewhat heavy American car that had a somewhat luxurious interior. And he, he really liked that car because of the smooth ride, the comfortable seats, you know, features like that. 
But the promotional material for that car was to sell it as a luxury car. And so the brochure that he brought, he brought home to look at, everybody in it, he said, looked really egoic. They looked really proud of themselves because, after all, I'm sufficiently successful in the world that I can drive a car like this car, you know? And it wasn't even that it was that expensive, but it was designed to look expensive. And Swami, he looked at that brochure for several days and he finally said, I just can't ride around in a car when this is the consciousness that that car represents. So he reluctantly agreed to buy, he bought a Nissan, which was perfectly fine, not as nice as that one for him personally, but he said he just couldn't do it. I mean, it was a, it was a very, uh, it, was, it was charming, but it was also true, because ideas are only a very small part of it. What, what we're always living in is a vibration of consciousness, and that vibration of consciousness is always expressing something between delusion and enlightenment. And the voice, and the voice has been the subject of many of the other recommendations in the course of this year-long study that we're doing of a suggestion for every day. The voice is a unique expression of our own consciousness and and one of the uh, foolproof identification methods that some security systems have used has been voice print. Nowadays, because the technology to gather sound and to fake it has become um, too sophisticated, that voice print can be hacked. But voice print can be hacked with your own voice misused. Voice print, as far as I know, can't be hacked with anything but your vibration. And so it's, it's interesting if you think about it, you know, when you get a phone call, now we have phone ID. But when you hear a voice, You'll remember it. You'll recognize it. Uh, someone called me whom I hadn't heard from for like about 15 years, and, and I, I, could, I recognized the voice. I knew that I knew who it was, and he enjoyed teasing me for several minutes until I captured his name, but there wasn't the slightest doubt in my mind as to exactly who it was because it was just, it was just that person. It had to be. So our voice also profoundly reveals our consciousness. And even when you train your voice, like uh, radio announcers would do or someone like that, you're still going to end up with your, yourself being revealed. So people can use all kinds of words. Um, they can be sophisticated. They can be simple. They can be deliberately folksy. One of the leaders of the New Age movement back in the 70s, I think he's actually still living, was a man named Stephen Gaskin. And uh, Swami Kriyananda and Stephen Gaskin really liked each other. Stephen had been an English professor. He was a highly educated person. But the persona he a- assumed was of a real folksy guy who just sort of, you know, just was always talking in colloquials and never came across with the actual education that he had. But it was just who he was. But the sound of his voice always had a, a, the quality simply of who he was. He was, a, he was a very lovable man and was enormously popular with good cause because that's who he was. So you can't hide it. You can't hide it with training. You can't hide it with education. You can't hide it with pretense. 
because the quality of your consciousness will come through, which is why a lot of times people like certain actors. And they may not even know why. They may like that actor because there's something about the vibratory quality of that actor that you're always going to like, even if he's assuming an accent or a character or something. And there's certain actors that, at least for me, that I just don't like. I just don't like them. They're icky. And their consciousness just comes across. So, again, Swami's saying here, you know, don't just listen to what people are saying. Listen to who they are as they say it. That's why that um, statement, what you are speaks so loudly that I can't hear what you're saying. It's actually, it's actually more true even than people may know because the sound of your voice tells me who you are. So pay attention. And of course, this is a way that we can evaluate other people. Like I have now shifted my opinion on a very tiny issue because now I've seen the people who are presenting it. I've heard the tone of their voice and the manner in which they speak. The self-important, we're right, everybody's stupider than we are, we're the ones who really know, we're going to tell it like it is. And even if I agree with their principles, which to a large extent I do, they've, um, they've neutralized the benefit of their principles by the vibration with which they are presenting them. See, this also has to do with the decision that we have to make in our lives, which is what, what is really the defining factor in human events? What, what really constitutes correct behavior, right thinking? Is it just words? Is it just ideas? Or is it the actual consciousness that you have behind that? In one of these, uh, one of the recent days, I was... Um, uh, I believe it was in this broadcast, maybe it wasn't, but in any case, there was a time when there was a nuclear initiative on the California ballot, and um, people were trying to persuade others to vote for this nuclear ban. It was a very well-thought-out movement. It was a spiritually inspired movement. It didn't, it didn't succeed in its short-term objective, but it did a great deal to help raise consciousness. But they tried to frighten people into voting against nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons are frightening and nuclear war is frightening. And they had these very convincing presentations of death and destruction, which were not at all exaggerated. They were just, if you drop a bomb of this magnitude on a city of this population, this will be how many people will die. Swami Kriyananda's response to it after commending them for their very good intentions and their very good work to carry out their intentions. He said, if your objective is peace, fear is not the right strategy. I mean, think about what what, what creates dissonance in the world. Invariably, dissonance and disharmony is created because somebody becomes frightened and they try to protect themselves. Or greedy and they try to get more But greed is also based on fear. Greed is based on, I don't have enough, I need more. Almost every aberration, and I dare say every, but I haven't thought it through, but almost every aberration comes down to a matter of fear. If I'm not afraid, if I'm at peace, I don't create disharmony. I mean, just think about it. Why would I create disharmony? I wouldn't feel any disharmony. But if I'm afraid I'm going to lose something, afraid I don't have enough, afraid I'm not being respected, afraid I don't have enough influence, that's when we begin to move out and try to force our will upon others. So the very definition of peace is the opposite of fear. That's also what 
St. Paul says in the Bible, only he uses the word love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So peace comes when there's perfect love. Now I'm still saying it was a, it was a project worth doing and they should have done it. But vibration is really what causes things to happen. And uh, uh, the vibration is our thoughts and the vibration is our consciousness. And our thoughts and our consciousness are manifested through the sound of our voice. So no matter how noble our intention, it's, it's not just what we're trying to accomplish, it's how we are going about trying to accomplish it. Which is why all great um, social reformers, I mean really great social reformers, I, well I, I recall the, the gentleman who, the, the longtime civil rights advocate, who died recently, he, he just said, basically, you know, we, what we accomplished, we accomplished because of love. Because we were fearless, perfect love casts out all fear, and we didn't hate the people that we opposed, we just opposed them. And that's how Gandhi won also. It's like he didn't hate anyone, he loved everyone, but he stood up against wrong, but his entire vibration, the entire time, was, was not one of fear or one of dissonance. It was always one of unity and harmony. But to get to the unity and harmony, we have to, we have to go through this. We have to fix this. Because this is dissonance and we have to get rid of that disharmony. But we do it because we love goodness. And, and when we're even working very hard against very um, bad things, it's not that we hate the bad, it's that we love the good. Recently, I don't even remember where, but someone was talking about if you go about social reform, you want to be the kind of reformer who loves something beautiful rather than someone who hates something that's ugly. Because what are the two operative words in hate something that's ugly? It's hate and ugly. What are the operative words in love something that's good? It's love and good. Everything about you will express that, including the tone of your voice. So this voice that I recently heard, I wanted them to love something good. But what I heard was that they were hating something ugly. I also want to dispose of that ugly. But if I'm hating it, uh, that is the ugly. And that's not where I want my consciousness to live. So, Swami says, Listen as much to the tone of people's voices as to their words. How they speak often expresses as much as what they say. God bless you, my friends.